This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. Welcome back to the second part of our discussion with Dr. Martin Camere on life skills and positive youth development in sport. In the first part that I recommend you to listen before this one, we talked about some of the challenges and critiques of life skills and how Martin and his colleagues have pushed to rethink the concept and move move the research area forward, especially uh, through a social justice lens. But so the second part, we will look into another recent contribution for Martin that is what he himself calls in a paper in the article, a risky project. And this is about rethinking life skills through post-qualitative inquiry. So welcome back to the podcast, Martin. And I would love to start by hearing how did you take this turn and develop this completely different way of thinking about life skills? Yeah, no, that's, uh, uh, I think that's also a, a very good way to start the conversation. And uh, I can say that uh, even early on in, in my graduate studies, I've, I've always had an appreciation for, for methods and methodology. And as much as for many people, that's, uh, that's a, a very mundane uh, kind of material to discuss, uh, I've always had a fascination for that. And so as, as soon as I started as an assistant professor, uh, ever since then, I've been teaching uh, at the graduate level uh, a course that's called Qualitative Data Analysis. And uh, wanting to put my best foot forward in that class, I've, I've tried to stay on top of all of the developments that have been happening in, in qualitative research. And, and those developments have been uh, many. And so that, that thinking got me to uh, participate in uh, the Qualitative uh, Research Conference, uh, QRSE, uh, since 2014, and so I've made the trek to the UK to participate in the conference. And in the last conference, which was uh, at home here in Canada, in uh, Vancouver, uh, Brett Smith, uh, so Professor Smith, uh, gave a keynote lecture. And I think for many in the room, this was uh, an early introduction to those post-qualitative concepts. And and although I'd, I'd heard uh, the idea of post-qualitative, uh, I may have dabbed in a few papers. I, I was still quite naive and a novice around the idea, uh, but this was a time where I was entering a, uh, an academic leave for 12 months, and, and I made the commitment to, to start reading uh, post-qualitative work, to go back to uh, the continental philosophers, uh, so the Deleuze, the, go back to uh, Derrida and, and all those, and, and I, I don't think I was ready. Uh, to 
understand the uh, ontological change that was going to happen in my thinking, uh, both personally and professionally. Um, I was confused at the beginning, uh, as I think most people are, but I decided to stick with it. And, and I, I think a lot of things, a lot of forces were coalescing at that point where, as we discussed uh, prior, uh, this, this motivation that I had to rethink life skills and rethink positive youth development, uh, all the changes that were going on in our society that were pandemic induced or induced by all the, 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 the social justice movements that were going on. And so for me, sitting down and reflecting on all those ideas, um, maybe it was rhizomatically. I don't think there's a linear approach to say that this happened because of this reason, but um, maybe it was a eureka moment. But I said, okay, I think there's an opportunity to take some of my professional strengths, which are around life skills, and to maybe, as you said, engage in a risky project and see if from a post-qualitative lens, I can find a way to reimagine this concept. And, and so this was, a, this was an undertaking that started in 2018. And for, for the first parts of it, it was mostly just a lot of reading, a lot of confusion, a lot of uh, rethinking the essence of what my role as a pedagogue is, what my role as a professor of research methods is. Um, I, at some point, debated, like, is, does it make any more sense to teach qualitative research methods? If we think about everything that St. Pierre and others have been telling us that we should just abandon methodology. And so I think uh, it materialized in the paper that came out last month. Uh, um, it, you know, if we use a post-qualitative lens, it's, it's not an endpoint, it's not an outcome. It's just one point in the continuous evolution of those ideas. And as I say at the end of the paper, uh, I want readers to interact with my ideas and to continue to push them in different directions. Um, but in a nutshell, that, that's pretty much it. Um, I think Brett Smith played a, played a big role in being a catalyst to get me to plunge in post-qualitative research. And uh, yeah, it's very exciting. Uh, I'm still reading a lot, uh, reading as much as I can to continue to develop my ideas. But it is, it is a fascinating as well as confusing project. And uh, hopefully I can elucidate some of my thinking uh, in the next few minutes. Yes, absolutely. And I was in that conference in Vancouver as well in 2018. And this was when I also, that was the first introduction that something like this post-qualitative inquiry, something like this is going on. And I'd seen some of the work coming out in the past couple of years. But at, unlike you, I've still stayed <laughs> very confused and really just didn't engage with it properly. So that's why when I read your paper with the concept of life skills that I do know something about before, I was quite excited, but it was also a challenging paper. So that's why I'm really delighted to have you here today and you can talk us through some of those key ideas. Absolutely. And, and I have to acknowledge again that I think it's important to, uh, to preface that uh, I am in uh, a privileged position where, uh, you know, being a tenured professor, where I'm able to take time, benefit from a 12-month uh, academic leave, to be able to immerse myself in those ideas. And it's not, it's not something that is available to everyone. Uh, as we know, as academics, there's a lot of us that are working in, in, in precarious employment uh, positions that 
Uh, and then again, in the, in the, in the neoliberal project that is academia now, and, and the pressures for grants and publications, uh, very few of us are privileged enough to be able to take some time and, and read deeply and read widely and take those risks. And I, I would say that very few of us are, are, are in positions in their careers where they can take those kind of risks, knowing that it's not going to have a negative effect on their careers and to dedicate all this time to go in novel areas. But to me, ultimately, that's the, that's the role of what we should be doing as researchers. Is if, if we're not taking risk and we're not, we're just reproducing the status quo, then we're missing the boat. And so the fact that I was able to get to a position where I, I'm tenured, uh, there's some security in my employment, I, I felt the responsibility, if I want to continue to move the field that I work in forward, um, I need to take this responsibility upon myself and, and take this risk. And, um, you know, hopefully, again, I, I've heard some comments from people that the article was published very recently, but my, my, main, my main goal in this is to get people thinking. And uh, if, if that ends up happening, uh, then I, I think I've done my job. But yeah, so far, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, in the years to come, uh, as, as papers get published, maybe around those ideas, like, well, where are we taking this? And that, that's what uh, I think it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And then to the concept of itself, life skills. And if we think through some of the ideas from post-qualitative inquiry, what can we do <laughs> with life skills from this perspective? Yeah, so, so that, that's a. I don't think there's a, one specific answer that I can give to that. And that's why, to me, post-qualitative inquiry, uh, and this is just to me, I'm not saying this is the, the consensus in the field, but to me, as I keep reflecting on this concept is, it doesn't mean one thing, uh, it, 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 it never should, uh, if, we, if we follow the advice of St. Pierre. Really, it, what I find to me, what it's done, it, it's, it's giving me a, a new lens to, to look at the everyday problems, the everyday challenges that we face. And not every, not all work in post-qualitative inquiry is anchored in new materialism, but most of it is in some way, shape, or form. And so to me, if I'm able to sim- simplify the language, is what PQI is doing in our field is it's making us appreciate the necessity to go beyond the discursive, to go beyond seeing life in our existence as only being in language and in text. And we need to reappropriate the material in our life and understand how it shapes our existence. And I think the new materialistic perspectives allow us to at least think about that. And that's why that was my goal is to see how can we reappropriate the concept of life skills in a matter that is relational, in a matter that is material, and in a matter that is imminent. And those are the three main concepts that I try to reimagine the concept of life skills. Uh, And so we need to get away from this essentialist view, this very logical empiricism view that life skills are an entity that live within a human subject and that that human subject can replicate those skills in different environments. And to me, looking at the issue from a new materialist perspective is life skills are fleeting. They're always in flux. They happen imminently 
as we interact with our environments. And so life skills only manifest themselves when you're put into a situation where you're going to interact with an environment and, and other forces within the assemblage of whatever that moment is that you're living, whether it's in sport or elsewhere. And so I think the three key concepts that are important for people to understand that, wanna, uh, that want to be able to grasp this new orientation to life skills that I propose, which is called relational, relationally adaptive know-hows. So the three concepts are relationality, imminence, and materiality. Those are the three big ones that I feel are important. And if we can grasp those three, I'm not saying it becomes easy, but it becomes easier to understand why there is a need for a new, a reimagining of life skills. And then one of the key arguments in your paper is that from this perspective, the idea of transfer doesn't make sense, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I can explain that as well based on just to extrapolate on what I just said. But this idea of transfer is very much based on, again, this, this essentialist view that the human subject will have skills within them. They will have leadership capacities. They will have goal-setting capacities. And if they learn those in sport, then they're able to transpose those skills and apply them at work, uh, in the community, at school. And so if, if we take a, a materialist and an, an imminent perspective, well, the skills don't reside in anything. And whatever we call this I, this entity, this, this, this individualistic uh, you know, human, uh, life skills only materialize and, and become actual uh, when you have a subject interacting with an environment. And so these, these I, I would say these artificial boundaries that we've created, so home, school, work, community, these are all human inventions. And if we really think about how we interact with our world, if the person is not the beholder of a skill and the skills only materialize when this this person, this entity is interacting with the environment, then the concept of life skills has, or transfer has no more meaning. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that is taken from one environment that is then applied to another environment. It's just every time that there is a situation where a person enacts a life skill, it's a new life skill. It's a new manifestation of that life skill based on what that person has evolved into over time, mm -hmm. which will all, always be different. And so Deleuze tells us in his, his classic book, uh, Difference and Repetition, is there is no sequel. Everything is always something new. And so the, the artificial boundaries and the artificial silos that we've created as humans for us to interpret our world allows us to see that there is some form of continuity. But at its essence, everything is always new. Everything is always changing. Mm -hmm. And if, if we rethink life skills from a more relational perspective, then the relation is also different. Absolutely. And so that's why I, I, try, I, I try to vulgarize as much as I can without losing the essence of the, the concept of assemblage. And that's why in the paper, I decided I was going to invest a couple pages in giving the example of a sports skill being an assemblage. And so I use, I use the tennis shot as the example. Uh, and so the quote that is in there is from an expert tennis player saying, every time I've hit millions of shots in my life and every time it's different. And so the relationality and the materiality that is happening 
is that combination of the person, the ball, and the racket together as they interact with the environment, whether it's the net, the surface of the tennis court, the fans that are yelling, the temperature, the humidity in the air, you take all of that together and, and no, no shot can ever be repeated. Every time the ball is struck with the racket, it's a new shot. It's coming at different speeds, it's coming at different intensities, it's coming at different angles. And therefore, there is no sequel. Every shot is new. And our, our job as human beings, if we're going to talk about life skills, is to be adaptable mm-hmm. and to think about adaptation. And so extrapolating those concepts to life skills is every time we're in a situation where we're encountering new variables, we're encountering new issues, new challenges, we may have a certain predisposition to have an ability to lead but in every new situation that we face in our life, that ability that we have to be leaders will manifest itself differently and always in a matter that is evolving because our society, our world is constantly evolving, constantly changing. I guess the saying that you can't step into the same river twice seems to fit here. <laughs> it, it is absolutely fitting. I had it in an original version of the paper, that exact sentence. It ended up being edited out. but. You're, okay. I, I, by saying that, you're, I think you're completely understanding uh, the essence of where I want to go with this new imagining of, of life skills. Mm-hmm. But I guess when we do think about taking the materiality seriously and our embodiment, we do have this bodily continuity that even if all the tennis shots are different and the situation is different you still have the bodily continuity of having practiced this shot for 10 years or 20 years or or how long so how does this temporality then interact with these ideas yeah so so to your point uh, um and so when when we just dis- when i discussed the concept of assemblage in the paper is and and, and i think the concept of uh, territorialization becomes important and so when I when I think about life skills in the paper, uh, as you say, there is a certain form of continuity. Uh, let's say Rafa Nadal, when he's hitting the ball, he's not hitting the ball a hundred percent in a in a hundred percent completely different manner every time. The differences that I'm talking about are minuscule; they're microscopic, but there are still differences. Um, and so Rafa Nadal is one of the greatest tennis players of all time because he's mastered the ability to hit the tennis shot. But still, the reason why he was able to get to such a high level of performance is that he's shown an ability to continuously adapt, and as all great experts do. And so that's why the, the concept of territoriality becomes important, where a life skill is still embedded within a certain structure. Because if everything is chaos, then everything becomes anarchy, then it doesn't work. So this idea that a person has a life skill, yes, it is territorialized within certain boundaries. It's striated within certain boundaries. However, there is always continuous variation. There's always this potential for variation. And that's, that is aligned with the concept of deter, deterritorialization, mm-hmm. which says that nothing is static, nothing is always the same. And even in things that we consider to be crystallized, to be static, change is still possible. And that's why the concept of transfer becomes artificial. If we think that every time we're going to enact a life skill, even if it's microscopic, even if it's minute, it's going to be a different manifestation. It's going to be a different 
uh, actuality to how this skill is manifested. Mm-hmm. And I think this also gives like an open-ended view on the future, you know, that it will be different and there is a broad variety of potential futures. And so you, one of the suggestions in the paper is to think about learning and life skills more through this idea of becoming. So perhaps this links to this open future somehow. Yeah, so the, the, the concept of becoming is very much uh, anchored in this idea of uh, an eminent ontology where um, there, is, there is no is, it's, it's always a becoming, uh, things are constantly changing. And so learning definitely has, to me at least in, in my understanding of it, uh, this, this idea of, well, I acquire different learnings from my environment and I integrate those, I internalize those, and then I can generalize them to different context in which I operate. Uh, I do feel semantically using the concept of becoming is more in tune with an imminent ontology, uh, demonstrating that we as whatever we consider to be us as entities, like our identity uh, as, as a subject that has certain roles in, uh, in society, it's constantly becoming. So the, the, the notion of learning is, is there. I just feel that the concept of becoming has less of an essentialist connotation to it, then perhaps some people may view this idea of learning. Especially, I would feel more positivistic notions of learning, of, of adding bricks to our understanding. And so with, with scientific progress building on itself over time, uh, I, I think that's sort of flawed. And instead of just things are constantly reorganized. And so that's why the it's not an easy concept to understand, but the concept of the rhizome, which comes from the botanical rhizome, but this idea that life is not arborescent, life is not linear, and we've got influences coming from all different types of angles. And as we're constantly becoming, we need to be attuned to this idea that creativity and new ideas can, can come from all these different angles and all, all these different sources. And, and if we stay open to that, then I think we're in a better position to uh, to make our world a better place eventually. And that's why I, I wanted to finish the paper by saying that this is not a finished project. This is just me in this moment in time, how far I was able to take my thinking. And even since then, my thinking is continuing to evolve. Uh, and that's why I, as people, as different readers interact with the paper, the ideas are going to continue to evolve. And, and that's what excites me is, is what, what's the next step? I don't know. And as researchers, that's what should be exciting to us. If we already know what the outcome of our research is, uh, I think we're, we're, we're losing our time. Yeah, I think this uncertainty is a big thing. So what you've done with the paper is really brought this uncertainty around the idea of life skills and where it might take us and how uncertain learning in sport is as well and i think this is really important to think also outside of sport but the world of work so you talked about being in now in a secure academic position where you can do this work but a lot of people are not and the careers in the world of work are no longer in many professions this kind of stage-based secure employment but people have very diverse unpredictable working lives where a lot of transitions happen. So I think this whole 
idea about uncertainty of our working lives or our sporting lives and how we need to most likely adapt our theorizing if we think of athletes development, athletes careers, but also this kind of learning that might happen when you play sport. Yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to take the idea of life skills and try to move it as far as we can from operationalizing it and delimiting what it is. So in the paper, I use the example of leadership. And so historically, conventionally, and in sports psychology and in other fields, education, economics, like leadership has been defined to be something. But I think that is, that is very constricting. Uh, why can't leadership be something else? And, and, and that's why I think the, uh, the concept of assemblage and this idea, this new concept that I, I propose in the paper of relationally adaptive know-hows doesn't put any limitation on what leadership can be. Maybe it's going to uh, expand into all sorts of different ways. And I think in, in the society that we live that is changing really fast, if we're thinking about developing athletes, if we're thinking about the world of work, as you alluded to, we want employees, we want people, we want managers that are able to lead in very rhizomatic ways, that are able to adapt to their situations and not be constrived by what society is telling us that leadership can be, but to be able to continuously adapt to everyday demands that evolve themselves. And also, I find it very liberating uh, when we start to think about life skills as being rhizomatic and not being constrived to this very neoliberal production kind of mind frame, especially if we think from a social justice perspective. And because I, I would say that conventional ways of being a leader, of being a, uh, of, of developing teamwork, of developing a lot of life skills is, is not conducive to the social justice agenda. But if we think of it, if we think of life skills as being, again, a, a becoming uh, of life skills being an assemblage of uh, connections, of different types of connections, it, it, it's very, uh, it is very exciting. It's, it's very emancipating that we can think of ways of being leaders maybe in the next 15 years that we can't even conceive now. There may be jobs out there that don't even exist that will require a type of leadership that we haven't even conceptualized yet. And same goes with athlete training, same goes what we do in our schools with our youth. And so that's why I feel we need to open, be open to this idea that um, we need to be adaptable. And again, I just wanna go back to this idea about social justice, but it opens up ideas, it opens up so many opportunities that are transformative, that we can transform the life skills that we have that have been delimited in a very conventional way and opening up to other possibilities that we may not even know what these possibilities are yet. And to me, that's exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think exactly this. We go back to social justice and the neoliberal agenda that has been connected to life skills and thinking of the world of work and being an early career researcher, doing some professional development courses a few years ago. What I found disturbing was that often this professional development is about how to get your next grant and how to network with people, how to do your presentation and get published and all these things. But there is never this talk about how to be a good colleague and stand up for your colleague who is facing, you know, unfair 
treatment in some situations and how to recognize and fight the power dynamics that are not conducive for you know early career researchers are often in a not in a good place in this power hierarchy of the academia and this is not part of the official program of career development in academia no your, your point is is, is very uh, very pertinent and uh, I had the opportunity I think uh, earlier in, in the year to read a, a quite interesting paper uh, by Andrew Sparks uh, where he talks about this metricization that we're seeing in academia and now as academics like we're some of the most metricized employees of society out there uh, you know, from Google H index to uh, impact factors to you name it, the list goes on. And so, I for for everyone that's listening, it's important uh, that there are very real pressures for early career academics. That you know, if you want to make it in this world, you have to play the game. You have to play the grant game. You have to play the publishing game. What I'm trying to say here is that once you get to a point where you have the privilege. To, to, to move beyond just being a data technician and just reproduce these empirical papers uh, as like a machine, that's, that's an important consideration. Like, so once you get to a certain form of stability, I feel it's, it's all of our responsibilities as researchers to then expand, to critique, to push ideas. Uh, but definitely, uh, I have to be honest, like, I think all of us have to play the game early on in our career. Not to the point where we have to sell our souls, but it's important to be cognizant of you know, what is the current system uh, that we live in and the academic system, but that we need to continue to push for academic freedom and, and our ability to, to bounce ideas, to create new ideas. Um, but early on, it's definitely a balance. It's definitely a balance between uh, making sure that you meet the criteria of your department heads and, and whatever they want you to do, the minimum of papers you're supposed to publish. But I feel that for myself, I, I kind of got tired of that, like just producing empirical paper after empirical paper and you know, finding, oh, we found this little significant difference. Okay, that's fine. But I'm at a point now where, I, like I said before, I think I'm privileged enough and I want to take the responsibility for the field to, to continue to push ideas. Yeah. I think we are talking about the same balance that we talked about life skills in sport. In some ways, in academia, you need certain skills to survive the game, the neoliberal game. But also, I think it's important for us collectively to raise issues about the working conditions and and the situation of the early career researcher and try to change some things that we can. Obviously, you can't change the whole institution overnight, but we can still show up with some resistance. Yeah, and as long as we make, we, we're able to be cognizant uh, of, of the system that we're in, uh, then I think we can try to instigate changes. But uh, if, if we live in double ignorance and we don't even know that we don't know, uh, then it's hard to instigate change. And so that's why for those of us that are in privileged positions that can raise those issues, uh, it's important to do so for the ones that can't do it yet. Uh, and so, absolutely, I, I agree entirely with your point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I've really enjoyed the conversation so far. I think I want to go back to the article and the ideas that you put forth to rethink 
life skills. You've also asked the question, are the life skills still something that makes sense? Or to quote your paper, whether we should instead strive to understand the intensities in sporting environments that foster within individuals becomings that are authentic and attuned to the world. <laughs> I thought it was a beautiful sentence, so I just wanted to quote it directly. So you left it to the reader to think, should we still be focused on life skills or do we want to move into something else? And Obviously, it will be great to see how people interact with the paper and what are the answers they come with. But where are you with your own thinking? I, I think the listeners will be interested in this. Yeah. So, yeah, no, very, uh, very interesting. I've been reflecting on this uh, a lot and uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I think it's still a project that's still in development. Uh, I've been using the word life skills for probably 15 years now in my work, ever since I started my grad studies. So is it sort of, is it sort of just staying around because it's been around for so long and I can't detach myself from the word and I keep using it? I'm not sure. Uh, is there still value in using the concept of life skills? Because if we want to have a greater impact on the ground, we know that very, a lot of people around the world are familiar with the concept of life skills. So if we introduce something else, are we, is our message going to get through to as many people if we start calling it something else? Um, I don't want to be seen as a, as a gatekeeper of life skills that I'm very much attached to the concept that, um, you know, and I'm going to critique people that say it's, it's not right. I'm actually a big critique of life skills now and the way they, they're positioned normatively. Uh, but I think in the future, as you said in the paper, I wanted to leave it open for the researchers and ultimately I'm not the one that's going to be deciding whether life skills continues to be a concept that we use moving forward in our research. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but um, for me, uh, it, even if we continue to call it life skills, it needs to evolve. It's not going to be the same life skills concept that we were using in the 2000s and 2010s. I think in the 2020s, it'll be something else. And this is a good thing. But uh, yeah, let's say we do this podcast again in 10 years and and maybe life skills is not being used as a word. Maybe we're, we're using, we've evolved to new concepts. And in some way, I hope we do, because if we're still doing the same thing we are right now, then we haven't met our mission of, of continuing to push our, our ideas forward. So Absolutely, I agree. And yes, it Obviously, it's an open question. I also very much look forward to reading and, and hearing how people interact with the paper. But yes, maybe as um, to finish up, in the first part of the discussion, what I mentioned is that people ask me what can they do with the concept of existential learning in, in the practical work, let's say sport coaching or... Uh, physical education or wherever they want to apply it and I just said that there is no easy answer to that but now reading your paper I think my paper is very easy compared to your paper to do something with it because post-qualitative inquiry is very complex and the ideas are very complex and you've shared that you spend a lot of time many years actually to read read and think about it before feeling that you're confident to actually write about it. And 
when these people who work in a pra- uh, more applied practical context, they come and ask you, hey, Martin, what can I do with your paper? I would like to do something with that in my practical work. <laughs> what is your answer? Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, again, I don't think there's a straightforward answer to that. Um, the extent to which this concept of relationally adaptive know-hows can be applied by a coach uh, tomorrow morning at a practice, uh, I think there, there's probably a need for another paper and for me to spend a uh, couple of months, a couple of years thinking about the, the application of that. Uh, to be honest, the essence in which I wrote the paper uh, was not for application. Like I see this as, as, as high level theorizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, if it ends up being trickled down to some form of application, great. Uh, but I think my thinking, and hopefully, hopefully readers can um, press in on this. Uh, maybe in five years, there's some form of application. Hopefully sooner, but uh, I'm not sure. Uh, to me, it, I, I wanted to, I wanted to be a catalyst to the thinking of new ideas and. Uh, by no way do I feel that this concept of relationally adaptive know-hows uh, needs to be crystallized and, and become this new homogenizing concept that is limiting what we do in the field. It's just an example of where we can take the concept of life skills moving forward. And maybe it evolves from that to something else. Uh, but as long as that's productive uh, in the sense that it allows us to continue to move our thinking, then I think I've, I've done, I've satisfied my goal with the paper. And I don't think what we're doing or with the paper, this, this should be seen by some listeners as this inherent problem between theory and practice that we have this gap. From a post-qualitative inquiry perspective, there is no gap. Like this is the concept we've invented. Uh, concepts can be concepts and, and that's fine. So, uh, so I, I wrote the paper in the, in that essence that to, as we discussed earlier, just to, to have a concept for the sake of having a concept. And, and, as, and it can stay at the conceptual level and help us move our thinking forward. If eventually it ends up making it on the ground and it gets materialized into something practical, it'll be interesting to see what it materializes in. I'm not sure. I don't have uh, ideas yet, but that's the beauty of what we do. And, and, and that's why I'm so fortunate to, to be a professor and to be in this this uh, disposition is that that's our job. We're here to learn. And then hopefully from what we learn, we can pass on some of those ideas to others. And so um, that's why I'm taking it as, as a responsibility of ethics to the field to uh, with this paper to continue to push ideas the same way I was pushed by your paper when it came out a few years ago. One thing I take that you have planted the seeds for researchers and those interested in theorizing is to take a look at learning in these post-sport physical cultures. So you talked about that both in the work that you did on social justice and life skills with your colleagues and then this post-qualitative inquiry. So what does learning look like in a post-sport physical culture if we get some inspiration from the work of Michael Atkinson, for example. Yeah, so, so, so to me, that, that's very compelling. Uh, there's, uh, you know, Atkinson is, is very much, uh, I think, uh, we're blessed to have him in our field and the ideas that he brings uh, to us. And, uh, you know, I, 
I've, I've read a lot of his work. And, uh, and so to me, this idea of, of post-sport remains uh, important for us to continue to develop, to think about. And for me, this idea of post-sport is something that I take even more on a personal level and, and maybe not as much on a professional level, but the way that I move my body on an everyday basis is I've, I've had to reflect and I, 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 I would say that I've, I've tried to detach myself as much as I can from this technocratic modernist idea of sport. And I like cycling. Uh, I do a lot of road cycling and my wife always asks me, it's like, Oh, you should take part in a race and you should start, you know, racing and then competing with others. I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. That's, that's as far as I want to be. Like when I'm on my bike, I just want to reflect. I want to be at one with nature. I want to hear the birds chirping. I want to hear the water besides the river where I go. And that's, that's to me the, the essence of how I want to move my body and how I want to resonate and connect with the world around me. And, and I try to do that in, in, in a lot of other ways that I, I move my body. And, and so again, the, the, the insights that Atkinson gives us is, is important. And, that's why I, I finished the paper with, with certain insights from Atkinson and Postcord because this idea of life skills is ultimately, I think, automatically attached to modernist sport, modernist contemporary sport that it's practicing. It has bounds of space. It has bounds of time. You know, you compete in four 15-minute quarters in a field that is 100 yards. I'm, I'm thinking uh, American football right now. But sport can be so much more than that. And the skills that we learn, whether they're life skills or existential learning, uh, we need to open up our horizons to more than that. And, um, and that's why when we delimit what life skills are, I think we're, we're not doing a service to ourselves. But in the same light, when we delimit too much what sport is and what can be and how we can move our bodies, we're also doing a disservice to, to ourselves and to the field. So... I think those two ideas go in hand in hand and we need to have a much broader conceptualization of what sport can be and what, what it can bring to us as, as, as humans. Yeah, that resonates with me, this question. You know, I've also got this, people ask me that you must have some kind of goal because you train so much. It's like, no, I don't actually have any goal. There is no competition that I've signed up for. I just... I just go running, you know, there is no point <laughs> beyond this. But I think we are, it will take us, it's lovely to see how much the physical cultures are expanding and how new forms of doing sport and, and physical activity are showing up. But I think it's still, we have some way to go to really kind of have a more prominent role of these post-sport ideologies in our movement culture but i think we are getting towards that yeah you know i hope so and, and so that i i love to bounce these ideas and think about these ideas because there are so many things that we take for granted that once we unpack them uh allows us to see the world in a different light and so all the dualisms that we have in our world that are artificial that we've created uh i think it's important for us to to just eliminate that could not live within those those very constricting dualisms and just as the this idea of positive versus negative of we're supposed to, we're going to get positive experiences of a sport or negative ones uh, to me that's artificial like I mean, there's so many types of experiences 
uh, as a, a lot of Michael Atkinson's work show, like from suffering, from pain, that we can still derive life lessons that may end up having, I don't want to use the word positive here, but an adaptive, and an adaptive near, not in the sense of a neoliberal adaptiveness that allows you to function in society, but that allows you to emancipate yourself into who you want to be as a person. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we live within, uh, language bounds us, and the, the dualities we have in our language bounds us to a certain reality. And when we get rid of those dualisms, we can expand so much the horizons of how we can think and live. And I think it's our job as researchers, as thinkers, as philosophers. Uh, and a lot of us don't see ourselves as philosophers. Uh, but I, I sort of have this inclination that you know, some, of the, some of the most compelling work that I've, I've read recently has been in pure philosophy. And it's, it's reinvigorating. Uh, as a researcher, to be able to get new ideas outside of sport and exercise psychology and then and, and pedagogy. And yeah, um, I had, I wouldn't call it an epiphany, but um, diving deeper into the post qualitative made me rethink of I don't want to be just a, a data technician that regurgitates uh, significant differences on a paper and then publishes those. Like, I, I think we can do so much more not denigrating in any way the quantitative research and the things that we've learned and the knowledge we've accumulated. But for me, where I want to go with my career and my thinking, and, and hopefully others uh, want to do the same, is, is what you just alluded to. Is we need to expand life skills. We need to expand sport. We need to expand the, the, the kinesiology, like what we think about what a moving body is and what it can be. And to me, that's what's fascinating. And that's what motivates me to want to continue research for the next 20, 25 years. And not just report what is happening in the present, but to imagine what could be in the future. Yeah, and, and that's the beauty of post-qualitative inquiry. Is it, it gives us that directionality towards the becoming. Uh, I don't want to word, use the word future uh, because uh, a lot of new materialists would say that there is no clear distinction between past, present, and future. It, it, it's all just one one mode of ontology that like we've created those differences, but definitely in terms of a becoming, uh, we can imagine new worlds and new worlds that are, are, are best for everyone, that are good for everyone, not just the privileged, not just uh, uh, the white males and uh, the other people that have privilege in our society, but we can imagine new worlds that are emancipatory for, for everyone. And I have two young kids and uh, I hope, I hope once I'm done with my career and I'm done publishing papers that, I will have left some form of an imprint uh, that the world they'll be living in will be better. And I use the word better here loosely. I don't know what better is going to look like, uh, but I, I hope we'll be nicer to each other. And if, if, if that can be you know, my sort of the, uh, the legacy of what's left like when I'm at my retirement party, I'll be happy. If I left people being better to each other through sport, and through the, the thinking that we do in sport, then I think I've accomplished what I wanted to do. I think these are really the perfect closing words for our conversation today. Thank you so much, Martin, for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, this was fantastic. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Through Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. 
If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on the Apple Podcast or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.